This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week, one of my favorite guests, Michael Lewis. What what can I say about him? His books are just required reading for anyone interested in finance or psychology uh, of money. And we speak about a lot of really interesting things. We talk about season two of his podcast, Against the Rules. The first season was about referees. The second season is, is about coaches. And this doesn't just apply to sports. This is about referees in the real world, uh, coaches in the real world, how, how things operate, how coaches affect students and children and, and everybody, essentially, including Michael Lewis, who claims he would not have been a writer but for Coach Fitz in high school. Changed his life. Really just quite fascinating. We also discuss his book, The Fifth Risk, and how prescient it was about ignoring the importance of government in trying to create uh, an entity that can respond to sudden and unexpected events, such as the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, the the discussion about what went right and wrong in the prep for that is really quite fascinating. Lewis isn't some sort of a, a left-wing, um, you know, Berkeley-based ideologue. He just cares about uh, management and competency and organizational um, excellence, and he's frustrated when, when we don't have that. So rather than me continue to talk, with no further ado, my interview with Michael Lewis. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today needs no introduction. He is the author of Flyers Poker, Moneyball, The Big Short, The Blind Side, Flash Boys, The Undoing Project. I'm going to stop there and just say, Michael Lewis, welcome to Bloomberg. Oh, well, thanks for having me back. Yeah, this is our third or fourth one. That's uh, We did one live and two in the studio. This will be the second one in the studio. Last we spoke, you were just launching your first season of a new podcast called Against the Rules. What was that experience like? What, what did you learn being a podcaster? So it's been that long because um, yep. that would have been that would have been a little more than a year ago. Right. Uh, Correct. It it is. It's been it's it. At this stage of my career, it's amazing and delightful to find a whole new thing to do that's that's as as sort of enriching as this thing has been. So here's what I found: Um, one, the audience is huge, and and it's and and different in nature from a book audience. People listen to these things differently than they read, and it's a more emotional connection you have with with the audience. So people um, will come up to me and say, oh, I really liked your book, but it's a cool kind of thing. And when people come up and they like the podcast, it's almost like they want to hug you. Uh, it, it's a, they, they feel like they, I think there's something about the human voice. They feel like they know you in a different way. A hundred percent. And I was going to say something you had said to me that I've slowly come around to accepting the book people read isn't necessarily the book you wrote. And originally I pushed back and now I'm kind of, okay, I kind of see that. When you're doing an interview, when it's just having a conversation or discussing stuff in an audio format, people really think like they know you personally. 
it's a very different connection between author and reader versus podcaster, podcaster and listener. So there's some overlap, and the overlap in nature of my podcast is a storytelling podcast, and it's scripted, it, and it, it, it's laid out and structured in the same way a long piece of writing would be laid out and structured. Uh, but but it um, the form encourages the creator to move in certain directions, and in, in particular, encourage the creator to move in emotional directions. It's an emotional it's an emotional connection you have. People are more likely to laugh; they're more likely to cry. Uh, than they are with the printed the word on the page, and they're less likely to like sit through a description of a collateralized debt obligation. It, it's it, it's 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 harder it's harder to do that kind of thing, but it but but the raw ingredients of a story in some ways work better in audio than they do on on the printed page. They're both great, you know. I I, I don't I'm not leaving one for the other. It's just been I I, I feel like almost like I spent my career. Um, as a, as a, like a, a weightlifter with only using my legs. And now someone has allowed me to lift with my arms. Uh, and I'm working all these other muscles that I just, I've never worked. And, and it just feels, it, it feels both, it's fun to do. It's a way to get material, get to material. I would have a hard time getting to in print and, and it will make the print stuff better. I mean, I just have no question about that now. So, so the first season of Against the Rules was about referees in sports and finance and life. What brought you to that concept of referees? And are you staying with a theme uh, about now the new season is about coaches? So there is there will be a theme that runs through. Uh, I sort of laid out seven seasons in my head at some point, and seven seven seasons seven, seven seasons of seven episodes each. Um, now, whether those get done or not, uh, well, we'll see. But they, but but the i the the idea in the beginning was to look at to look at American life through through characters in American life, in particular roles that have been in flux, where you've seen some movement in the status, uh, the situation of the role. So the referee was an easy one to start with because you could you could kind of show that. I mean, even in sports, it was easy to show the way refs had gotten kind of better and better and better, but people hated them more and more and more. And it was that you could see that, and you could this and extend that from sports to other things where you see referees under attack for various reasons. And, and um, that, that character interested me because I did feel like the, the theme that would run through all the episodes was fairness. Um, it would be kind of like inequality, Fair and unfairness, the feelings that are very much alive right now in in, in American life, and I, and I was just going to, and, and I'd be playing with that those ideas through this character and the character, and we do n- a number of different stories about the character. So going to the second season, it was never going to be about reveries; it was going to be about something else. And I had seven characters in my mind. It was a question of which came next. And coach, I went to coaches. I went to coaches one because it preserved it preserved an option that I thought maybe I'd want to have of keeping the entire seven seasons inside of an arena that every role is 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 someone who's actually inside of an arena during a sporting event. Um, now, in the second season, it's not all sports coaches. In fact, it's very seldom sports coaches. There are only two or three of the episodes that have sports coaches in them. Uh, but but it 
but the you know the spirit of the thing still ri- arises out of athletics. Yeah, that that was pretty obvious as soon as the, I started listening to the season two. It's like, okay, so first referees, now coaches. I wonder when he's going to start getting into you know the guy that tapes up your ankles and 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 the ticket seller. How much is it going to stay with sports? But the other thing that stands out. Writing is a pretty solitary act. You can still speak with people and do research and interview people, but ultimately it's you sitting in front of a keyboard or a pen and paper. How have you transitioned to sort of the ensemble um, approach? And I know that Pushkin Industries, who puts out your podcast, it was founded by Malcolm Gladwell and Jacob Weisberg, who are two old buddies of yours. Yes, and who now sit around a table during a table read when I have a rough draft and tell me what what, what sucks about it. Um, it. It's it's one of the joys of the form that it's not an individual sport. Like writing books is basically an individual sport. Right. Um, but this is the, the, the other people who participate in this, um, the producers, the editors, Malcolm and, and Jacob, have huge effects on the product, on what, on how it all turns out. And that's been great. It took me a little while to get used to people telling me that I'm wrong. Uh, or people are people taking, you know, it's more of this. It's like people taking stuff that I thought, wow, that's great. And sort of saying, eh, that's not really great. Uh, yeah, we can do, you can do this this way. And, and it's a, it is a new form. You know, I have a lot to learn. Um, so that's been, it's been stretching. It's been it's just like been a really great thing. And I like all the people, love all the people who I'm working with. Um, so we have a little team and the team kind of gets each other now. We've now done it. I've just I'm da- about to put to bed the last episode of the second season. So that's our 14th episode. So we've done this 14 times together and they're getting I think they know me now and I know them. And that's a lovely feeling. I mean, I haven't had that feeling in a long time. Uh, and, and it's, you get it in businesses. I get, I'm sure mm-hmm. I don't have one. You get it in sports. Uh, you know, you miss, I miss, I've missed that feeling. So that's been just like another, another, another thing about it. It's been all pleasure. My extra special guest is Michael Lewis. You know him from, I'm not even going to list the books, but I do want to talk about two of his recent books. One is The Fifth Risk, which is about the transition team uh, and a bunch of other things with the current president, and also his audio-only book, The Coming Storm. Uh, Let's stay with The Fifth Risk. So that turned out to be a shockingly prescient depiction of all of the unfilled jobs in, in this administration. And there are literally thousands of political appointees and very senior folks that just never, ever got appointed to a position, uh, which is kind of shocking because that's how you control the government. That's how you affect your policies. First of all, it was incredibly prescient depiction. But second, how did you ever find this story? People really were not all that plugged into what was going on here. You know, it's funny. It seemed to me kind of low hanging fruit, but only to me. This is so this is what happened. I woke up uh, from surgery. Uh, I had I had hip surgery the day before Trump walked into the White House. Uh, the day before, the day before he actually became president, and um, 
I was laying in bed all drugged up. And and I had, you got to remember, I had on my mind what the book I just finished, which was The Undoing Project, which right. is all about the way people misperceive risk. And I'd always seen Trump as, as watching his campaign, it just felt like he was a risk distorting machine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was, anyway, I, I had this thought, this, and, and, it, and it was watching him go to the White House, I thought, I don't know how he's going to kill me. How's he going to kill me? So he's going to do something. He's going to do something that's going to kill me. It was like an existential dread. Right. Uh, and, and I thought, how do I get this across to people that what they just put in there is unbelievably risky? And uh, and my first thought, this is this is relevant right now, was, and I've got some way to actually doing it, was to creating in Times Square something I wanted to call the Trump death clock. And it was going to just scroll the number of deaths caused by Donald Trump's mismanagement of the federal government. So I'm already framing in my head the federal government is this management of manager of existential risks. Um, th- that seemed kind of obvious, but but the death clock, I, you know, I, I got it. I found someone who was willing to pay for it. I just couldn't find an intellectually respectable way to to, to determine the, the death count. Right? It was going to look like the debt clock, and it, but and it was going to like scroll, and you'd have pictures of people who had died who shouldn't have died, and all the rest. Well, that's actually gone up. I don't know if you've noticed it, but two days ago, someone put up something called the Trump death clock in Times Square. Uh, and, it's, it, and it's just measuring the number of people who've died from the coronavirus who, right. wouldn't have, who wouldn't have died if we had different policies in place. Anyway, leave huh. that to one. Well, it's, funny, it's funny you bring that up because I have not been in Manhattan in 64 days since we've been sheltering in place. And my version of that death clock is this wonderful infographic from a website called Information is Beautiful. I'll send you the link. And they it's global. There are a couple of great info sources, but they every day you get the updated version of number of new infections, number of deaths, not, and it's state by state, country by country. And it's both incredible and depressing at the same time because this really – I'm, I'm coming to that question, but we might as well jump to it um, – how much of a avoidable error are are a hundred thousand American deaths? A lot of it. So th- here's to get back to the, to the fifth risk. Picks up at the beginning of this story, right? I mean, the, the Trump. There's there's meant to be a transition where the, which is an exchange of knowledge and expertise. Pre pre election, like pre, a transition team is put yeah. together, and you write that of all people, New New Jersey Governor Chris Christie is leading Donald Trump's transition team. Exactly. And and by law, you know, they've got to have this thing. And the, and the federal government subsidizes it. And the Obama administration is required to do it. And Obama knows the value of it because Bush did such a great job, apparently, handling the government. Over, and, and there was just lots of stuff. They, they're in the middle of a financial crisis. There were a lot of stuff that needed to go from one group to the other. As, as naturally hostile as they might have been to each other, right. there was a general recognition that, like, 98% of the federal government is not, not an ideological matter. It's a problem solving and, and problem dealing with situation. And you've got these people who do, who do it, these civil servants, but it's run by political appointees. It's run by 4,000 people you're putting in charge of these, uh, this operation. And, and so Trump has, through Chris Christie, a team of hundreds and hundreds of people who are supposed to go into the federal government the day, the day after the election. And learn how the nuclear arsenal works, or learn you know one of the things on the top of the list was how the Ebola crisis was epidemic was was dealt with, um, and 
Trump fires everybody. Everybody. Christy so wait, they're the- supposed to start November 9th, yeah. long before January 20th. They yeah. get like a four-month head start or yeah. two-month head start. Yeah. And uh, and Trump had always been dismissive of this. He told Christy uh, at some point when Christy was trying to explain to him how important this was that, Chris, you and I can take two hours away from the victory party and learn everything we need to know about the federal government. Uh, he, had, he had no interest at all. And he's the guy who's supposed to be running it. So when things happen, I, the big, I think the biggest thing they did, they missed, apropos of our current crisis, they missed um, the lessons learned from not just Ebola, but the, 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 flu, um, the flu potential p- pandemic. Um, I can't remember if it was bird or swine. I get them mixed right. up. Uh, it was the previous coronavirus. It was, it was, the, it was, the, it was influenza. And it was... But it, SARS? But, was it the SARS so, one? No. Or was it the swine no. flu? There's so many of them. It's hard yeah, to so many. I'm sorry. It's it's either the bird or the swine flu. I keep, one of them happened in the Bush administration, and one of them happened in the Obama administration. And it's a the it's it actually is very telling. I can't remember which is which because it never happened. It you was know, dealt it, with. It was dealt with. It was dealt with not perfectly in either case, but in each case they learned, they, and it got better and better. And one of the things they learned in the Obama administration is it is absolutely critical that there be someone in the White House who is coordinating the entire federal response because you've got all these different agencies doing all these different things. And the agencies, you know, compete with each other. They're power grabs. They don't, you need to check them. So you need to know if the Center for Disease Control says, oh, we have a good test uh, for, the, for, the, for the coronavirus. You have someone there say, show me and, and I want to see it. And I want to make sure that that we have, you know, we we have um, fallibility built built into this. There's rep, there's there, there are other places we can go if this doesn't work. Trump fired the people on the National Security Council who oversaw the 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 federal government's response to pandemic right. and, and the threat of pandemic. It's one of the several things he did that that that. Um, had a huge effect early on to our, in our ability to respond to it. But as a result, I mean, I think what you've got to do is compare our experience here with the experience of, of governments that have been more competent, like South Korea or Germany, or, you know, they've been most, almost everybody. I mean, we are what? What percentage of the world's population are we and what percentage of the world's um, infections are we? We're, so like, we're, we're like a quarter we're, of the infections and we're like 5% of the, right. yeah. I mean, th- that's crazy, especially since it, t- it took a little while to get here. Um, so I, I don't um, it- it's it's been shocking how shocking if you didn't know, like if you didn't know how Trump had a- approached the federal government, it's it's totally shocking how they how they responded. But if you knew, like if you if you'd done the work I did to do the book, you know, you think, well, that's going to happen. You know, I mean, that, it, that I don't know what the I don't know what the crisis is going to be, but whenever it comes, we're not going to be ready for it. So I know the immediate pushback that some people are going to make is, oh, that Michael Lewis lives in Berkeley. He's in California. He's a lefty. But from everything I've read that you've written about this, you're not talking politics and partisan policies. You're talking organization and management. A- am I getting that right? Yes, it's 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 just like how do you do this intelligently? Um, I mean, how, how partisan is a pandemic? It's crazy. And let me, you know, it's funny. I live in Berkeley. 
I'm actually not that much of a lefty. I mean, I, 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 if the people in Berkeley knew my politics, they'd run me out of town. <laughs> right. I, I, I mean, really, it's much messier than that. I, I am not like this, oh, I identify as a lefty. It, it, nowhere near. Uh, I'm not going to tell you who I voted for in my life. But it's it, I'm I'm all over the map in in my political feelings. Uh, so that but yes, if you, even if you label me a Berkeley lefty, um, this Berkeley lefty is asking like, why can't we have a smart management of a pandemic instead of a stupid one? And why you know the amazing thing about it to me is even now that he, he is refusing to accept the responsibility for managing the problem. That it is a nat- it is a problem that naturally demands a centralized response, a coordinate. It's like a war, a court. You know, you don't want California raising their army and Alabama raising their army and deciding, you know, where they attack Japan independently. It's in world war, you know, you, 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 you need to coordinate the enterprise. And it's even, even, it's almost even more demanding of a centralized response than a war because everybody's behavior affects the outcome that, right. you know, if, if half the population says, all right, this is no big deal. We're going to go run around the streets and infect each other. And the other half of the population shuts down the economy. You get the worst of both worlds. Right. That's and, right. And that's what's happening. And and I have to ask about the coming storm, which is sort of based on the whole um, weather NOAA part of fifth risk, it seems. So, it was the, so what it was, so what I've always done is almost always done with the books is I've tricked them out in magazines beforehand. Not all of them, not all of it, but pieces of it. I, you know, sort of test run them in in shorter form. And the coming storm was the magazine version of the fifth risk. It was a cha- it was a chapter in the right. fifth risk, and um, it was a chapter about. So I was wandering around. Once I realized that Trump had not got the briefings, I, and I could go get the briefings for the first time and turn up in some poor person's office who, who was wondering when someone was going to show up and have them explain to me how you manage the nuclear arsenal or, or or how you predict the weather. And these things have not happened. Nobody's been told in the Trump administration. It's sort of, this is why I thought it was low-hanging fruit. I thought, oh my God, what a story. You know, you can go anywhere. They're, they're, the risks that are being managed are spectacular risks. Um, the weather, I, 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 so I was in this position writing the book where do I go? And I had on my floor of my office that you're watching me in, there were manila folders for every department of the government. And they each got fatter and fatter and fatter. And, and at some point, one would make the argument to me, you really got to go there. And, and I thought, and the way I chose where to go was, I want to go places where people don't imagine there's a problem. Like everybody's going to know there's a problem in the defense department, if the defense department is not well run. Or, or, or treasury, people kind of get treasury. Uh, but they don't know what goes on in the Commerce Department. And in the Commerce Department, there's this thing called the National Weather Service, among other things. The Commerce Department is really, what it really is, is the Department of Data. Uh, um, So much of the data that we use as a society resides there in one way or another. And the weather data and climate data is part of that story. And so I went to go ask, like, what happens if nobody gives a rat's ass about this data? And 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 Wilbur Ross, who'd been put in charge of the Commerce Department, as much as said, I don't give a rat's ass about the data. I, all I care about is trade, which has nothing to do with the Commerce right. Department. Wrong department. <laughs> Wrong department. Uh, uh, so the, I, the 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 National Weather Service ends up being a really interesting case study in Trump management, because 
what happens when you don't, it isn't that Trump is some libertarian. I mean, it's that he just, that he thinks the federal government shouldn't exist in some way. He's not there in his head. He goes there when it's convenient, he'll say it because then he doesn't have to manage it. Like if it shouldn't be doing things like managing a pandemic, then it's not his fault. It's not managing a pandemic, but, but it's, uh, but, but he has no particular, he just doesn't care about it. All he cares about himself. And so what happens when you don't care about it? Who shows up to run it? And when you don't care about it, and the only rule you have for who you're going to put in the jobs is they have to have demonstrated total loyalty to you and not said anything bad about you. Well, who shows up are people who've got narrow interests in these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he put in charge of the weather service and, or the operation that runs the weather service or tried to put in charge the guy who, um, who owned and ran AccuWeather. Now, AccuWeather has been hell-bent for 25 years on essentially making it extremely difficult for the National Weather Service to communicate weather forecasts to the American public because it gets in the way of AccuWeather's profits. That's how Accu- what AccuWeather does. And, and once you do that, I mean, this is a, this is some, once you all of a sudden say, all right. Boxes um, uh, in the hen house. Yes. Yeah. It, 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 everybody in that weather service knew this was an existential threat to the weather service. And the weather service is a, in itself a wonderful story. You know, if you go back 40 years, not even 40 years, the three day forecast wasn't any good, uh, you know, much less the 10 day forecast. The, the progress that's been made in weather prediction is like one of those great, sl- very slow moving stories. Like, I, I don't know. I grew up in New Orleans. When I was growing up in New Orleans, the way you found out whether a hurricane was about to hit was you went outside, you know, you, you just, you know, was the Frisbee still still in the yard when you threw it? Um, but, but you know, and now you can like evacuate entire cities and you have a really good sense of where it's going and all that weather service achievement. Uh, and there's, there's a lot left to do. So let, let me just stop you there a sec, because there's a part of the book that you just said something that triggered me. So you said, I'm going to go meet with these various people and get the briefings that the incoming Trump administration didn't get. Can anybody say, hey, I want to learn how to dispose of spent nuclear fuel rods or how do we maintain the safety of our nuclear weaponry? You can't just walk into DOE and get that briefing. How did you arrange that? Because I would imagine a lot of that stuff is pretty classified. Well, there was stuff people had to tiptoe around, um, but but I got to, for example, the guy who had just walked out of the Department of Energy and had been, he was a Wall Street guy named John McWilliams, uh, w- worked at Goldman, um, was a very successful private equity investor, has made his fortune, and wanted to kind of give something back. And he he was he was asked by the the Obama Secretary of Energy, Ernest Moniz, to, to come in and evaluate the risks inside of the Department of Energy. And he became the chief risk officer. So all this stuff, classified and unclassified, ended up kind of percolating up to him. And he, so I could go see him, and I went and sat down with him, and it was true, he would have to say, I got to stop right there in this description of how we're dealing with the South Koreans and or the North Koreans and their missile program, because we just hit classified. But but you could get a long way before you got to classified. Right. You didn't have to. He, but he, as he were, actually, when I was talking to him, he said, you know, just assume the Chinese are listening to this. 
Right. Uh, because because I'm almost sure they've listened to everything I've done since I've been here. Um, it, it was it was amazing. He's sitting in his backyard in Long Island, uh, and and the Chinese are there. But he but he but he could walk me through, if not if not in the most granular detail where we got to places where there was a issue of like is it classified but he could walk me through broadly what this what the problems were that he was most worried about and in a way that he and the thing was i sat there listening with my jaw on the ground thinking god i hope someone's there dealing with this stuff and he's he's telling me no nobody's there dealing with this stuff and um and not only that nobody's talked to me that all you'd have to do, all they have to do is call me up and I could tell you everything I'm, t- I, I, I tell them everything I'm telling you. And, and, and they, the fact they didn't want to know, I just couldn't get past that because it was not ideological. It's not ideological how you stop the North Koreans from, from being able to deliver a missile to California. That's not an ideological issue. Uh, really, it isn't. At, le- at least it never used to be. Never, it seemed to have become one. Right. And so th- there all these. There, there was all this knowledge that just seemed essential if you were going to manage the enterprise. And the indifference to to the knowledge was, in, in a way, it was gold for me, right? Because it was, it gave me a, a a way to justify my presence inside the federal government. And I never would have thought if you'd asked me, you're going to write a book about the federal government. I mean, my God, no. I mean, it's a, what a horrible subject. But Trump electrified the material. He, all you had to do was totally ignore the federal government to make it interesting. You describe the power of a coach to change a life. And in, and in the second episode of the series, you say, in this case, mine. Tell us how Coach Fitz changed your life. Um, yes. So my, Coach Fitz was my high school baseball coach. And he was... When he arrived at the Newman School in New Orleans, Louisiana, he was the most terrifying thing any of us had ever seen. He was six foot four. He'd been he'd been a catcher in the Oakland A's system, big time college basketball and baseball player, and he was from the Bobby Knight School of Coaching. Uh, but but he 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 but with a, with a twist, unlike Bobby Knight, there was never any doubt that he cared about you. That, that he was coming from a place where he was just trying to fix you and not just make you a better baseball player, but like make you a, a better man. And, um, and he's, he, he, when he, when I collided with him, I was just trouble. I was like, I was when I was 13 years old, 14 years old, I guess I was 13. And he was, um, you know, I, my idea of, of, uh, of a, a day of hard work was going out and ripping hood ornaments and key covers off cars. I mean, I was like a little vandal. I didn't go to, I didn't care about school. I was kind of like indifferent to the world around me. And he just, he, he, first he jolted me with, by scaring the hell out of me. And sort of like, this is a guy who I don't want to displease. But second, he sort of then, he created a series. The best way to put it is he created a series of dramas that not just for me, but for everybody who was whoever played for him. And in these dramas, you were, you were doomed to fail. You were doomed to be incredibly uncomfortable. You were doomed to ex- experience real fear, but you were destined to overcome it all. You were going to learn how to deal with your fear, learn how to bounce back from failure, learn how to be comfortable being uncomfortable, learn how to compete in a really difficult situation. 
And there are lots of little anecdotes and stories, that, but these dramas in the end, he starts, what he actually starts to do is build new identities for kids. And the identity is I'm someone I'm, I can win. I can fight. I'm not afraid, you know, that I, I, I'm, I can be a hero. And, and, and he starts kids on a kind of a new track, how they think about themselves. Uh, and he did it over and over and over and over. And the punchline to all this and what got me interested in telling the story in the first place was some years ago, uh, I got a call from someone who played for him, basketball for him. And they were raising the money to rename the school gym for him, millions of dollars. And the money was being thrown at this guy. The school let him do it without a whole lot of help from the school. But parents of former players and former players were saying, man, this guy changed my life. This this guy did all the hard, hard work in raising my child. And at the same time, the very same time, the parents of his then current players were trying to get him fired because they thought he was too hard on their kids. And I thought this is a moment in the culture it, that, that this a thing that I went through that wasn't abusive. It was just really difficult um, that somehow it, kids aren't allowed to go through anymore, aren't being allowed to go through anymore. And I think we're going to pay a big price for this. But the bottom line was this guy, I think it, I, I maintain to this day uh, that if I had never had this experience with this coach, I never would have become a writer. Uh, yeah, I was astonished when you said that because you seem like such a natural writer. So Coach Fitz takes you from Michael Lewis, the hooligan, to I love the story, one out, bottom of the ninth, man, first and third. The best picture pitcher gets pulled, and in comes second stringer Mike Lewis. Tell us what the coach says to you. That seems like a lifetime turning point, that moment in, in your baseball uh, career. Well, so this is what he, you know, there are lots of other people in the podcast with me say, telling a similar sort of story. It's sort of like about where, Coach Fitz. Where he, where he, how he uses the sport to, cre- to start to create a new identity. So I just joined the team. I was, I was 13. Uh, it was the summer team. I was the younger pitcher, so it wasn't my turn to pitch. I was sitting on the bench watching us play, and like a, you know, it was one of those games where you felt like all the grownups in New Orleans were in the stands screaming and drinking, and 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 it got very intense. And for complicated reasons, he had to pull the pitcher. Uh, and it was the bottom of the last inning, runners on first and third, one out, and it was just I was so over my head. You know, I'd been I I, I just restarted my baseball career six months before. I just learned a curveball. He comes in, he grabs me off the bench and he and pulls me out on the mound. He says, he says, you know, I'm kind of glad we're doing this because there's no one I'd rather have in this situation. <laughs> and, I, and I, you know, in retrospect, it's funny, but at the time I thought, I believe him, you know, like he, he thinks I can do this. And, and he, he kind of looks over at the guy. He, first he hands me the ball. He says, shove this up their ass. And then he looks over at the guy at third base and goes, and then pick his ass off. And, 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 and so, and it's exactly what happened. I picked the guy off third base. I struck out the next guy we won. And afterwards he says, this is who you are. This moment is who you are. It w- was so different than anything I'd ever been. I th- but it was such a good feeling coming from this, you know, it was like God talking to you. Zeus was talking to you. And he says, this is who you are. So all of a sudden you start to be this. You start to tell yourself this story. This is who I am. And to be this, but to be this person, I have to be a different person. I have to work. I have to care. I have to try. I have to suffer. 
I have to be brave. You know, it's like one thing after another. And so all those qualities started to come in, come out of him. It's almost like, and I, we talk, I argue this in the podcast, the really great coaches are giving you a piece of themselves. They're taking some little piece of their character and they're putting it inside of you. And, and like anybody can call themselves a coach, but that the role is a very funny role. As I say, it's like a rubber suit. It sort of shrinks and, and expands to fit the character of the person who's wearing it. And, and, um, you know, the man makes the clothes. And and when you have a character who is as powerful as that character, you can have enormous influence on a person. To say the very least. So let's talk about a very different coach. I am very late to the game of tennis. I started in my, I don't know, early 50s. So I am not playing all that long. And one of the few books I purchased that I found to be of help is The Inner Game of Tennis. Tell us a little bit about the author of that book and his completely different approach to coaching than Coach Fitz. So this is the episode that follows the Coach Fitzgerald episode, which will be released next next week. Um, So there's been this movement in coaching, and I kind of wonder where it come from. And the the movement has a couple of aspects to it. One is um, the thing that's being coached more than anything else is a state it's the state of mind in which you're doing whatever you're doing so that it's sort of mental coaching uh and it's everywhere you see it you see it in with chief executives you see it with wall street traders you see it uh various forms of life coaching and these people call themselves performance coaches and they're all over the economy it's Where, the tony robin finication of america uh, yes, but it's really the Tim Galwayification of the. It's the okay. guy. Who, the inner game of tennis is really the big, beginning of all this. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, you talk to talk to some talk to some big time coaches like Pete Carroll or Steve Kerr. They will tell you their inspiration is that book and that guy. Uh, and and the I and the I yes, and the idea is, um, your words like you can't really manipulate players or the people you're trying to coach as simply as you think you can just by telling them to do things, just by criticism and praise. And in fact, criticism and praise are both often counterproductive. They're, they they create that what you're trying to do is get the, 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 the player into a state of mind where they're almost unselfconscious in, in what they're doing. And, and to focus, or, or put it another way, to move their focus onto things that are very helpful to focus on and away from things that aren't helpful to focus on. Someone who's going out to, um, to pitch in a, in a, in a, in a pressure situation. The last thing you want to be thinking is, Oh, please God, don't let me walk him or please God, throw a strike. What you want to be thinking is um, push off the rubber, you know, really push when you, you're thinking about, Physical things that actually control the outcome, not the outcome itself. I can tell you a funny story. So Tim Galway, who writes this book, he's he was just a tennis pro. Like how many tennis pros in the world have started a revolution? Uh, he's a he's a he's a tennis pro in the early seventies who starts teaching in this different way, not telling people where to hold their racket, just showing them strokes and saying, "Just watch me," and then just do it. Uh, and and he his book is published, and he thinks it's a tennis book. It's like, ah, you know, you know, it'll sell 20,000 copies. 
it sells like ends up selling like two million copies. But and people are grabbing it who aren't interested in tennis but teaching other things. He gets a call from the Houston Philharmonic, and he knows nothing about music. Like doesn't even know the notes. Never played anything. Just, he's not a musical guy. But he goes down to see these people, and the guy who's the, the, the who's the the conductor of the symphony is kind of skeptical. And he kind of and after they listen to Galway's talk about the end game of tennis, he says, "Okay, pick someone here to coach." And he and 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 Galway says, "Any volunteers?" And he says, "The tuba player raises his hand." And he goes like, this is really bad. Like, I, what, I don't even know which end of the tuba you blow on. And, and so the tuba player gets up and Galway says to him, what's your, what's your, what worries you? Like, what's the problem? And the guy says, sometimes the notes are, the notes are not coming out quite as full as, as I'd like them to. And I'm straining to hear it. And it's very hard to hear it because, you know, the tuba, where they come out is so far away from my ear. And Galway says, well, like, what do you th- what do you notice in your body when things aren't working? And the guy says, "Oh, my tongue gets dry and almost it starts to come, almost get swollen." And so Galway says, "Forget about the notes. Don't listen to the notes." He says, "Just focus on your tongue. Well, just keep the t- tongue moist. Don't worry about anything but but keeping the tongue moist." So the guy, you know, Galway says the guy picks up the tube and goes boom, 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 and he says, "I couldn't tell any difference. I didn't know. I did. I couldn't tell whether it was good or bad." But the guy does this and the entire orchestra stands up and gives him a standing ovation. <laughs> he said, and it, it was like focusing on the right thing as opposed to the outcome. Had process the, over outcome. Sure. Process, process over outcome. And there are lots of different ways to say it. And there are lots of different ways to teach it, but it creates a movement inside of coaching and, and it, it creates an oppor- a different kind of opportunity. It means you don't need to know anything about the thing you're coaching. You just need to know about states of mind that lead to good performance. And so the, there's a guy in that episode. He's 29 years old. He is he is a d- direct descendant of Tim Galway, and he's coaching. It, you know, any given day, you would find him with New York Giants football players, New York Mets baseball players, New York City firefighters, Goldman Sachs traders. My daughter, 17 year old softball player, I hired him just to see what, how that worked out. But he that he's able to move from one space to the next, and you talk to the people who work with him. And actually, I saw it. The effects, the effects are actually kind of great uh, that, that you you just it gets people in a, in a kind of a, a relaxed frame of mind to perform under pressure. My special guest this week is Michael Lewis, uh, and he has been writing almost a weekly series of columns at Bloomberg Opinion about things that are going on with the coronavirus. And, and they've been kind of fascinating, like most Michael Lewis topics. You find a corner of this that other people are either overlooking or haven't dove as deeply into it, and then you reveal something interesting. The first one you wrote noticed, gee, we really don't have a lot of data about the effect of social distancing and what it means for the spread of, uh, of the coronavirus. What made you start doing these weekly columns? Well, it was the ineptitude of the response, I think, was the first thing. Also, the size of the problem. But it was I, I was just struck that we live in this society that has led the world in exploring the importance of data. We coined the phrase data scientist. We revolutionized sports by using data and analytics in new and different ways. Every business in America has, has been swept up in this data revolution. 
we face this existential threat and we lack data because we're not collecting enough of it. It's the most amazing thing. I, I, I you know, that the, it, so the initial failure of the, of the Center for Disease Control's test and then the seeming lack of enthusiasm, interest in the Trump administration in, 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 fi- in rapidly figuring out that problem and testing more um, got me interested in the first place. And then the question became like, I mean, I still think this is an opportunity and I still may try to do this with the pieces. I think you could take some of the best like baseball stats geeks, the guys who are in front offices now, guys who are running teams, right? and throw, a, throw them into this problem because like, where do you, what's the data you want right now? There's a whole lot of data that will really help us with this. One is like, one is d- data in, in who's got, about how many people have the disease and how it, how it spreads. I mean, that's, this is, this is knowable. Uh, we don't know it, but it's knowable. You, you mentioned in one of the columns that we haven't really explored why churches and synagogues seem to be focal points. Is it something about singing as opposed to working with a family member who has it that you don't get, yet a church or synagogue seems to be a giant hotspot? Yes. It, it, I mean, the, the, the places where people are in each other's presence and breathing heavily uh, for a long periods of time seems to be a big, big problem. Whereas you don't really, it's not, doesn't, I mean, it's all anecdotal, right? This is such a, so troubling. Right. It shouldn't be anecdotal. Uh, I, I don't get the sense that anybody's getting it by, you know, from a jogger who's passing by, uh, or, or from a surface of a table, or, I mean, I don't know that's true, but I, we should know this already. And we don't. Um, Let me ask you a question. When, when you go shopping and, or if you have food delivered, from a supermarket, are you wiping everything down with uh, either Clorox wipes or something like that, or does it just get thrown right into the fridge and freezer? Gets thrown right into the fridge and freezer. Really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I but I would not go to a restaurant right now if they mm-hmm. were open. No, not no. no it's going to be. I, I don't know if I'll go to a restaurant before there's a vaccine. Uh, How about if there's a treatment but not a vaccine? Oh, fine, I'll go to a restaurant. If there's have a you treatment. have you been following this about the llama? antibodies much smaller than human antibodies that seem to ha- lock on to the pro- spike projections of the outer part of the coronavirus. I think Pfizer is testing that with their German partner. And the downside is you get a very long neck and you start spitting at everything. Right. But, but otherwise, but you won't get the coronavirus. That's uh, Hey, that's a fair trade-off. Yeah, totally fair. Uh, so there are, so the data, you asked me why I got interested. I got interested because it seemed like we figured out how to value baseball players, but we haven't figured out how to measure how to how to how the coronavirus works. And we we and there's there's social data like the movement of people. It's being collected. Right. It's being analyzed. It's just, but I I get the sense it's being done in the kind of very crude ways that say baseball stats were looked at in the early seventies. And I, and I think I think there's just like so that's one thread of the columns is I'm very interested in the whole data story. So before we leave data, the Google Apple project to trace people who are uh, moving about through their mobile phones, that seems to be pretty detailed data set, although we don't really know of that data who has it. We could just tell how much people are, are moving around the country. So all I, I haven't actually written about this yet, but but there's also the fa- Facebook data that's being essentially laundered through epidemiology departments at, at universities. So right. Facebook, these companies can't give their data to the government. This even have privacy issues, but they can give it to academics who can anonymize it, 
and and give it in a different package to to policymakers. And I do know that they've been able to determine that that just increase increases in human movement. I mean, this is kind of mind blowing, but increases in human movement. So, so let's say uh, Gavin Newsom in California says, "Okay, it's okay to go to the beach," and then all of a sudden you see an uptick in in actually how many how many yards people are moving every day. Um, there's a direct correlation between that and deaths from coronavirus. You know? Really? Yes. A couple of weeks later, they've already figured that out. Wow. And and, and if they think about how many steps there are in there, I, I you know you can imagine a world where everybody's moving around a lot more, but they're just in their cars and they never get out of their cars and they would have no effect at all. But actually movement is a pretty good proxy for spread of disease. Uh, and, and so that data is going to be usable if they get their minds around it in all kinds of interesting ways. They'll be able to see the effect of the policy on movement and you know, the effect of movement on the spread of the disease. Um, so that I think we're headed in a direction where data is is going to be our solution, short of a vaccine or treatment. The, the data offers the most hope. What do you think about these anti-lockdown protests that we've seen in places like Wisconsin and and Michigan? Um, I think they're horrible. Uh, I mean, it's sort of like if you, it's not just yourself you're affecting when you wander, when you, when you decide to get together with lots of other people, you're making it more likely I get this thing. Right. And, and, um, but although a lot of them have gotten it as, so as from what we've read since those, uh, events, it's symptomatic of a bigger problem. And this circles back to the podcast. Mm-hmm. We are, we are an uncoached team right now. We're a team. We're a team. We're a team where everybody wants the ball to shoot. We're a team where it does not playing together. It's a really, it's a, it's a, and it's a moment where we really need to act as a team that play and and play together. So we we need to have a strategy, and everybody everybody buy into the strategy. That that is uh, going to be the title of this. We are an uncoached team. If somebody is to write a book about this era, and I have to imagine we're going to see dozens of them. Um, who should write that? Is that a Michael Lewis book, or is that uh, somebody else's book? I think I have an idea, but I'm not. I'm not ready to talk about it. I'm. I'm glad to hear that because uh, anytime you get a an idea, other interesting things come about. All right. So season one was referees. Season two is coaching. What is season three going to be about? I don't want to say yet because I, because I'm not quite sure whether I'm going to keep it in the arena or leave the arena. Right. But if you do seven, you're going to keep the original concept was everything sports related within that. Everything it's sort of the, the roles are all roles you find inside of a stadium, inside of inside of an arena of ambition. Uh, but but it, it may I may I may break that rule and just and, and it just may be, you know, there may be other roles that I decide want to explore. I have not figured out what the third season is yet. And um, I have to ask about the book Coach you wrote about Coach Fitz. That's a deeply personal book. You you reference yourself in Liar's Poker, but I don't think I've read anything of yours that looks as deeply personal as as Coach appears to be. Well, and the podcast. So that this is right. There's nothing. I don't think I've ever written anything quite like that. Just because. Um, I'm generally not my material. This usually it's generally something else, but this was just an odd moment where I was useful. Let's talk about podcasts and streaming video. 
What are you watching during lockdown and, and what are you listening to? I have been working so hard on the podcast that I've been watching very little. But the one thing I have been watching is Fauda. Uh, it, it was, so stressful. It's, it, is, it is stressful, but it's unbelievably good. It's great. Yeah. Uh, so Fauda is the only thing I've been watching regularly. In fact, I think I learned in one of your columns, I don't remember if this was you or somebody else, that Fauda was originally written for an Israeli audience and it's watched throughout the Arab world, which is sort of surprising when you consider the subject is Israeli intelligence officers going after terrorists. It's the Narcos story all over again. Narcos, okay. was, Narcos was written for an American audience and it's all over the South, all over Latin and South America. So uh, I think I asked you this last time and I don't recall much of an answer. I asked who, who your mentors were and I don't remember you saying Coach Fitz. But now I have to re-ask the question, hint, hint, who were your mentors? <laughs> we zap, you know, you have, to, you know, they're men, your mentors at different stages of your life. Right. He's probably the most important, certainly the most important because he caught me at that stage. My father's always been a mentor, mentor to me and still is. Um, the uh, Tom Wolf was a mentor to me when mm-hmm. I early, early stages of my writing career. Um, my editor, Star Lawrence at, at, at Norton has been a really important mentor to me. Uh, those are the, I would say those are the main ones. That's a good list. Um, favorite books. What are some of your all time favorite books and what are you reading now? If anything, I've just started in on, in on, uh, Hillary Mantel's, um, trilogy. Wolf Hall is, was the first novel and I, I never got around to it. And so I've just started to read that. Um, I just finished the single best pandemic novel. It's called The Gentleman in Moscow by Amor Tolls. And it's, it's, the, it's the novel to read in a pandemic because it's about a Russian aristocrat who's locked up inside of a hotel for 50 years. He can't, li- he can't leave. And, and it's, this, it's this wonderful exploration of, of, a, of a mind adapting to a smaller space. Um, anyway, so th- I love that book. Um, I'm reading novels. That, that, I'm not. Re- I haven't been reading any nonfiction. Give us a uh, third one. Well, I can't read more than one at a time. So the the, the I'll give you. I'll only give you one. Um, uh, I'll give you one that I read a while ago, but it's sort of like it. It, it, sh- it should have been. It, sh- it should have occupied the place in the American curriculum that Catcher in the Rye does. It's called Red Sky at Morning, and uh, um. Pick that up and you won't be you you you'll be happy. Fantastic. And and our final two questions: What advice would you give a recent college graduate who is thinking about writing as a career? It's really simple, and that is make sure that you actually want to write rather than be a writer. Uh, there are all these people who want to be writers, but they actually don't want to write. And if you don't actually love it, you're not going to be good at it. It's going to be miserable and you're going to spend all your life posing and pretending to have written. And it's just it's just it's a horrible, horrible path. And it's something about the because nobody can you can nobody can really call you on it uh, for a long time. You can spend your whole life pretending to be a writer without actually writing. So uh, so just write, you know, and then the second part of that is what you write about. Right. Because when you come out of college, you usually don't have that much in the way of material. Go do stuff that's just interesting. Because maybe you can write about that. 
So don't just be a writer. Write, write and be something else. Works for Hemingway, they, right? And then and the two will go to eventually the two will find each other. And our final question, what do you know about the world of writing and investing and risk today that you wish you knew 30 years or so when you ago when you were first getting started? So when I was first getting started at Solomon Brothers or the, when I was first getting started as a writer? Well, I love the story about you, you know, writing at Sally and, and having them call you into the office and you had a... <laughs> Someone figured out, um, was it Chevy Chase's dad figured out? I was writing under a pseudonym and Chevy Chase's dad was an editor (laughs) at Simon & Schuster. He's the one to put it in my head that I could write a book. So Um, so at that era, what do you you know today you wish you knew back then about the writing process? I I don't think I would, you know, I like the way I... I learned about the writing process. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to put a lot of stuff in my head when I was starting out that I didn't have to sort of earn the knowledge. You know, I, 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 I think I was blessed that I didn't have any writers in my life, that I didn't know any writers, that I didn't know anybody who knew any writers, that I was sort of making it up as I went along. I would hate to have gone at it in a more knowing way. I made a lot of dumb mistakes, but I like those mistakes. Like I don't, I don't rewind the tape and say, oh, I wish I'd known that. It, it, it would have been worse. Anything I would have known would have made me worse. That was my conversation with Michael Lewis. Always a delight. We decided to release this as a special uh, bonus podcast uh, for Memorial Day weekend. I hope you found it interesting. Um, all the usual things apply. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure to look up or down uh, an inch on Apple iTunes, and you can see any of the other 300-plus conversations we've had since we began recording these, or check out your favorite podcast source, Spotify, Google, Overcast, Stitcher, wherever finer podcasts are sold. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. You can check out my weekly column on bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. Sign up for our daily reads at Ritholtz.com. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that puts these conversations together each week. Michael Boyle is my producer slash booker. Charlie Vollmer is our audio engineer. Michael Batnick is my head of research. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.